It's always a joy to be with you on a Lord's Day to open the Word of God together. So I would like to ask you to open with me to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, as we continue our study through this wonderful book and very practical portion of the book of Romans. And today again, we're going to consider the priority of the body of Christ. And this is reading again now Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 3 through 5 today. The word of God says, for I say through the grace given to me that everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. The church, which happens to be who you are, is the most unique physical and spiritual organism on the planet. Now, you probably noticed I did not say organization, and I did not say institution or building. The church is not an organization, although, hopefully, it's organized. It is not an institution, although it has been ordained by God. It's not a building, although it has foundation and structure. It's a living, breathing, growing organism with a head and a body. It was elected and formed in the mind of God long before the world ever began and has been and is being created in time and history. The church was planned by the Father, given to the Son, purchased by the Son, and now is sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. It's not brick and mortar, it's spirit and body. It does not have one address, it has millions of addresses. It gathers to feed and scatters to grow. It's made up of all kinds of people from different nations, tribes, and tongues. It includes Jew and Gentile, male and female, adult and child, slave and free, and even kings and peasants. And they all have a different variety of backgrounds and education. There are some who have very interesting personalities, and there are some who have very strange personalities. It includes former murderers, former rapists, former drug addicts and dealers, former homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators, is full of formerly self-righteous people who believe that they were right with God because maybe they didn't drink or chew or go with those that do. The greatest amount of them are the least. And they are considered by the world the fools of the world. They believe in God that they've never seen, and they trust a Savior they've only read about. They look forward to a future in a world that is without sin and hate the very presence of the darkness that they live in now. They're always repenting and at the same time desiring to be more righteous. They're often overwhelmed with sorrow, but at the same time have unspeakable joy. They are the church, the ecclesia, 
the assembly of God's saints, the called out ones. They are the building of God built on the foundation of the apostles with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. They are the bride of Christ, the chaste virgin, pure and clean, awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom. They are the true Israel, the ones who believe as the father Abraham believed and have imputed righteousness. They are the flock of God and who have the true shepherd who calls them by their very name. They are the body of Christ with many members, and he, Christ, is the head. They are what we call the church. That is what we are. We're the church. We're the ecclesia. We're the called out ones. The analogies given in the Bible, the pictures that God paints about the church, give us a number of different elements and important facets of the church. Take, for instance, as I just mentioned, the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, if you break down the word, it simply means to be called out. Kaleo in the word ek, the preposition on front, means to be called out. Now, James White would be upset with me because I said that because he says it simply means assembly. Well, some lexicons would differ a little bit on that. But I know it means assembly. It's the assembly of God's people, but it also means that we're called out. In fact, the Bible teaches that you and I are the called out ones out of darkness into light. We are called also to holiness and obedience. We are called out of the world and called to be separate from it. We're called to edification and evangelism. So we're the church. We're the called out ones of God. But we're also the building of God. That means we have a foundation that is built on the apostles and the prophets. But we also have a cornerstone. And that cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And for those of us who may not be familiar with the building industry, at least many years ago, whenever they would build an edifice like that out of stone, they would work very hard to get one particular stone that was perfectly true. It would be straight, square, plumb, level, everything. And that would become the cornerstone. And from the cornerstone, the lines would be pulled and the levels would be drawn. And everything would be built based upon the trueness and the accuracy of the cornerstone. And Jesus is the cornerstone. He's perfect, right? So guess who we have to line up against? The perfect son of God. And God is building that church. He's building that building. And we build upon that foundation a life of righteous works to the, for the purpose of glorifying God and bringing glory to his name. We're also called the bride of Christ, which means we are uniquely his. We're his bride. And as a result of that, Christ is very jealous for his bride. He's very jealous for her purity and her protection. And we look forward to the day, in fact, whenever there will be the wedding feast of the Lamb and we will be eternally united with Christ forever without spot and without blemish. We are called the true Israel of God. In fact, we are not Israel externally in religion. We are not Israel physically necessarily from the descent of Abraham, but we are the spiritual seed of Abraham who have trusted as Abraham did in Christ as he looked forward to Christ and to forward to the cross. We look back to the cross and both of us have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are the flock of God. Beautiful picture of that we are the sheep of his pasture and we are as Gentiles, we are the sheep from another fold that he is called out individually by name. And the Bible says that those who are his know his voice. And the sheep, the sheep, sheeps, plural, 
the sheep come because they know the Savior and they come to his name. Now, we are sheep, and that's a good, good indication of what we're like. We're, uh, we have a proneness to wonder. We often aren't quite that smart. We're led astray. We're easily hurt, and we're often under attack. So we need a shepherd, and we need the true shepherd who protects his sheep, and in fact, according to the Bible, lays down his life for the sheep. But also we are his body. We are the physical representation of Jesus Christ on this earth. We are his body. He is the head. We are the body. And we are many members or many parts with many functions, totally controlled by the head, who is Christ. We are the arms, the legs, the feet, the hands to a dying world. We are the only Christ that many will ever see. So it's paramount that the body stay clean and presentable and that it remains strong and healthy so that the head can use the body appropriately to reach the world for Christ. And that's the picture that Paul is painting here in Romans chapter 12. He's painting the picture of the body of Christ and Christ is the head. This is not the only occasion, by the way, whenever this particular analogy is used referring to the church, that it is a body. Let me just read a few passages to remind you of this, that it's used throughout Scripture. Ephesians is a wonderful recollection of this particular imagery because in Ephesians 1.22 it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Ephesians 2.14 says, And he himself referring to Christ, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law, the commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man of the two in making peace, and thus that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. Now what he's talking about there is Jew and Gentile. He's bringing together two different people groups, if you will, into one body, in unity and in peace because of the cross. And then in Ephesians 4, 4, it says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope and one calling. Ephesians 4, 11 even says that, they, that Christ himself gave to the church apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. This is used again even in Ephesians 5.23 when it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of the body. Ephesians 5.28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. So he who loves his wife loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh and bones. And then even in Colossians, uh, Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up my flesh that was lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. In Colossians 2.19, it says that we are to hold fast to the head from whom all the body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments growing to the increase that is from God. In Colossians 3.14, but above, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. I think 
Paul's pointing out something here, right? He's making an emphasis that we are a body, and we are the body of Christ, and we are uniquely his body, and we are the only means that God has chosen at this time anyway to represent himself to the world. Now, as we came to our text in Romans, we began to see that this is what Paul is beginning to really emphasize in the beginning portion of the application of Romans 12 through 16. And he's driving home the importance of the body of Christ. And it can't be more emphasized than the way the Apostle Paul does. Because of all the things that he could say, of all the things he could emphasize for the Christian believer to live like and to be a part of, he begins by talking about the centrality and the importance of the body of Christ. You remember he told us that we have to be willing to be living sacrifices, right? And the way we do that is not only giving ourselves wholly and completely devoted to him in verse 1, but also in order for us to do that, we must be actively working at transforming our minds through the power of the word of God and the power of the spirit. And I would add to that also the body of Christ, the work of the body of Christ. But now he begins to really start zeroing in on this. And he begins, as we noticed last week, by the admonition, basically telling us not to think too highly of ourselves. And his point is, you're part of a larger body than just you. You're not it. You're not the only thing. You're part of a larger body. In fact, this body is part of a lot larger body that covers the entire planet. I was amazed, you know, whenever we went to India. And the same thing happened whenever we went to Kenya. And you interact with someone that you've never met before. They're of another culture, of another land, on literally on the other side of the planet. And yet you have this bond This unity there, because these same people love the same Savior and are saved by the same Christ that you are. And yet, they're on the other side of the world, yet they're part of that body. But we are a local body here. And as a local body, we have a responsibility, as the Apostle Paul said, not to think too highly of ourselves, who paraphreneo, that is to esteem yourself more valuable than you really are, but you need to have an accurate esteem, an accurate view of yourself, a sober view. In other words, you are nothing, but as we'll see in just a few moments, you're very important. You're most important. Don't think that you're the only thing that matters and that the body of Christ is going to end up uh, dissolving whenever you die and go to heaven, because it won't. The church is going to march forward as he has always planned, and God will build his church. But now while you're here, until the Lord takes you home, you're part of this body. And you have a very important part, but because you have a very important part, don't think that you are the only part. (laughs) Don't think that you're the only thing that matters. It is too often, sadly, the case that in, in the context even of Christianity that We seem, as we've seen in the Bible, we esteem certain gifts and certain talents and certain abilities. It's kind of like the secular world. I mean, we look at a guy who can run a football from one end of the field to the other and score a touchdown, and we give him multiple millions of dollars, and we think he's the greatest thing on the planet. And yet there's someone far away in a distant land who is loving his wife, loving his children, being effective and used in the body of Christ, being faithful to the Lord, which one do you think is the most important to Christ? It's that man. 
It's that man, far away, loving his wife and his family and raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, being faithful to his local assembly and being the part of the body of Christ. I mean, we have a warped perspective of what really is important, don't we, in this world? A warped perspective. And we have a tendency, even in the church, to minimize what is most important and to emphasize those things that are not so important. And we don't want to be guilty of that. And I have uh, dealt with that in a couple of messages already, so I don't want to spend too much more time on that. I want to move on, as I promised. So we're going to move on from the admonition now to the illustration that Paul gives, and we start with the anatomy. The anatomy is verse 4. He begins by illustrating the importance of the value of individual members of the body so that we don't think too highly of ourselves by using the anatomy of the human body. He says in verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function. So let's just stop there for a moment. Let's capitalize on this. Let's understand what Paul is talking about here. This is not complicated to any of us because all of us sitting here understand the uniqueness of the human body. And the older we get, the more we appreciate the way the body used to work. Right? Right? We're very thankful for the years whenever we could do stuff and it really didn't matter much. I told a, a, a deacon, a blessed deacon of this church years ago, I said, you know, finally when you get old enough to know what to do, you can't do it. You know how to do it. You know how to do it without messing up and then you can't do it. So we understand the importance of the body. We understand what it is to have the body that works correctly. And God gives us here the picture of the human body as a representation of what the church is like. It it has a lot of parts, right? Your body has a tremendous amount of parts. But what's emphasized here in this text is the arm is not the body. The foot is not the body. The leg is not the body. The eye and the nose is not the body. It is parts of the body. They are parts of the body, but they make up the whole body. If you only have a leg, you don't have a body. You have a body part. If you have an eye, you only have an eye. You don't have the rest of the body. If you don't have the brain, the eye doesn't do anything, right? Each part of the body has a different function than the other parts, and the eye does not do what the foot does, and the foot does not do what the mouth does, and the arm can't function as the neck does, and the neck can't do as the leg does. Each part is very unique and, frankly, very important and very needed. Some have even said, you know, we often don't take a whole lot of uh, emphasis on our, our toes. We cover them up. We try to make sure they smell good. But nevertheless, they're very important. If you've ever noticed when you're standing how often you'll kind of push on your toes and they keep you balanced from falling over. The, the tremendous complexity and amazing nature of the body, every single part matters. And we take it for granted, don't we? Because it happens every day. I mean, the the normal functions of the body go on every single day. And frankly, they are pretty much dependable, right? It's a great wonder as we look at the body, the human body, and we seldom overlook and appreciate what happens on a constant basis. I mean, we use our hands and our eyes and our feet and our mouth and our tongue without even thinking. It moves almost automatically because we have this tremendous ability through the brain functioning through the nervous system to immediately send signals to whatever part of the body that needs to act. And then without even talking about the hands and the feet and the tongues and the mouth, 
We have the heart and the lungs and the digestive system and all the other parts of the internal body that is just constantly working all the time, and you don't even have to think about it. I grant you when it stops working, you'll think about it, but while it's working, you don't even think about it. It's designed to function that way. God has purposed that the body, minute by minute, day after day, year after year, has worked and continues to work. The interrelationship of the parts of the bodies are so unbelievable in their intricacy and their medical science is still learning details and will continue to learn. It's like an inexhaustible library of details to learn about how the body works together. And it's often only when our bodies cease to function correctly that we really appreciate certain parts of the body and how they're needed. I have a very dear cousin of mine in Florida who is suffering from kidney cancer right now. You don't think much about your kidneys till you're diagnosed with kidney cancer. And you realize how important they are. People who have to go in three or four times a week for dialysis understand how important that small little organ is that we have in our body called the kidney. That purifies and cleans the blood and makes everything work appropriately. You may have read a book that has been popular over the years. It's written by Dr. Paul Brand. It's entitled Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. In that book, he talks about the amazing diversity and interrelationship of the body and the cells of the body. I believe he's a neuro, neurologist, and so he kind of zeroes in on the, the cells of the neurons and the brain cells. But let me just share with you just for a few moments. It's, it's a little bit of reading, but I want you to see just how intricate the body is from his perspective, someone who understands medically those details. It's beautiful because he compares them to the uniqueness of the body of Christ and how all of us being so different are yet so important in our function. He says this, and I quote, I am first struck by their variety, that is the cells of the body. Chemically, my cells are almost alike, but visually and functionally, they are as different as animals in the zoo. Red blood cells are like discs who resemble lifesaver candies, and they voyage through the blood-loaded uh, veins and arteries with oxygen to feed the other cells. Muscle cells, which also absorb much of the nourishment, are sleek and supple, full of coiled energy. Cartilage cells with shiny black nuclei look like bunches of black-eyed peas glued tightly together in their strength. Fat cells seem lazy and laden, like bulging and white plastic garbage bags jammed together. Bone cells live in rigid structures and exude strength. Cut in a cross-section across the bones, they resemble tree rings, overlapping strength with strength, offering impliability and sturdiness. In contrast, the skin cells form patterns of softness and texture that rise and dip, giving shape and beauty to our bodies. They curve and jut in unpredictable angles, so much so that a person's fingerprint is uniquely different than any other person, and even their face is completely different than any other person. The king of the cells, he says, that I've devoted much of my life to in studying is the nerve cell. It has an aura of wisdom and complexity about it. Spider-like, its branches out and unite it branches out and unites the body with a computer network of dazzling sophistication. Its axons or wires carrying distant messages to and from the human brain can reach a yard in length. I never tire of viewing these varied specimens and thumbing through books that render the cells. Individually, they seem puny and oddly designed, but I know these individual parts cooperate to lavish me with a phenomenon of life. 
My body employs a bewildering zoo of cells, none of which individually resemble the larger body. Just so, Christ's body comprises an unlikely assortment of humans. Unlikely is precisely the right word, for we are decidedly unlike one another, and even unlike the one we follow. The body of Christ, like our own bodies, is composed of individual, unlike cells that are knit together to form one body. He is the whole thing, and the joy of the body increases as the individual cells realize that they can be diverse without becoming isolated outposts. He goes on to say that, talking about and describing the unity of the seemingly endless diversity of the cells in the body, he asked this question, what is it that moves the cells to work together? What ushers in the higher specialized functions of movement, sight, consciousness through the coordination of, listen to this, a hundred trillion cells? That's how many you have in your body. One hundred trillion cells. He said the secret to the membership lies locked away inside of each cell nucleus, chemically coiled in the strand of DNA. Once the egg and the sperm share their inheritance, the DNA chemical ladder splits down the center of every gene, much like the teeth of the zipper being pulled apart. DNA reforms itself each time the cell divides. Two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, as you can see. Each with identical DNA, along with the way the cells specialize, but carry the entire instruction book of 100,000 genes. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated, more than I want to get into today, because I get, I get beyond my intelligence level. But I'll tell you this, thinking about the hundred trillion cells that are in your body, each individual cell carries the entire DNA strand. So in other words, they can look at one cell and get all the information they need to make you over again, 100%. But think of it like this. If you've ever thought you've been strung out, let me just kind of show you another way to be strung out. DNA, if you were to take the DNA of one single cell and stretch it out, as we know DNA, one letter after another, it would be six feet long from one cell. Now, if you take 100 trillion cells and you stretch all of those out, hook them together like a train, you could literally go back and forth to the sun 610 times. You say, I don't believe that. Well, I didn't believe it either. So I looked it up. And like you know, you can believe anything on the internet, right? No, I actually did a little bit more than that. I went a little deeper than that to look at it in detail. It fascinates me. So you take 100 trillion cells and you take their DNA and you stretch it out, each cell at six feet per cell, that means you have 600 trillion feet of DNA. You take that 600 trillion feet of DNA, divide it by 5,200 feet that make up a mile, and you come up now that you have enough DNA to stretch 113.5 billion miles. You take that 113.5 billion miles, you divide it by 93 million miles to the sun, it means that now you can go 1,221 miles. So if you go to the sun and back, split the 1,221 in two, you can go 610 times. 
So if you've ever thought you've been strung out, that's being strung out. Now that is absolutely astounding, isn't it? It's, it's, it's amazing to even consider the possibilities of, of such a thing. Even this doctor who wrote said, DNA is estimated to contain instructions that, if written out, would fill 1,600-page books. To go further than that, to understand how the body works and its complexity with DNA, it says the nerve cell that literally has all the information of all of that DNA in its own cell, but it's only going to select from a certain part of that library. So it's going to go and maybe select the volume four to carry out its operation. And then there may be a kidney cell that's going to select this information and what it needs to do from volume 25. But the point is, every single cell knows exactly what it is supposed to do. It knows where to go and what to select to get its information and how to operate. The amazing thing is, is that all of this was created by God. And that God gave everything and all the details of complexity to every individual cell so that every individual cell would carry out the process that God designed it to accomplish. He went on to say, every cell possesses the genetic code so complete that the entire body could be reassembled from the information of, one, of any one cell in the body. Every single cell literally has the entire complete library. Just as the complete identity code of my body inheres uh, each individual cell, so also the reality of God permeates every cell of the body of Christ, linking us, the people of the true church, the body of Christ, it links us members with a true organic bond. I sense the bond when I meet strangers, as he even said, India, Africa, and California. I've been to India, Africa, and I'm going to California this week. Must be something about where the body of Christ goes. He says, I share with wonder the community of the universal body that includes every man and woman in whom God resides. What is it that brings us together as the body of Christ? It's not DNA. It is Christ. It's Christ in us. It's God in us. And we have that same, same set of desires, if you will, to praise and to honor and to glorify and to obey and to trust and to love and to seek after God. It's all deposited within us. But the body doesn't always have good news, as we all know, even though it's tremendously complex. You can have rebellious cells, as it were, in the body of Christ. As John MacArthur said this, some are benign in the sense that they do not destroy the church. They simply gorge themselves on the blessings and the benefits of the expense of the rest of the body. They become uh, fatter and fatter, always taking in, seldom giving out. The focus of their whole existence is self-service. Their creed is, I will get all that I can from God and all that I can get from the church. In their unfaithfulness to the Lord and to his people, they sap the church of its vitality and can so weaken it that it becomes emaciated and cannot function normally. He went on to say the church also has cells that are mutinous to the point of destruction uh, through outright heresy or flagrant immorality, these malignant members openly attack the rest of the body, eating away at its very life. We would consider something like that like cancer. Cancer is re in rebellion against the rest of the body and decides to do whatever it's going to do. And that's not a good thing, is it? It causes the body of Christ tremendous harm. And if left undetected and left unaddressed, can kill the body. 
And as believers, we are all interrelated spiritually. We all are part of one another. I love the way Paul says that at the end of verse 4, that we are members of one another. We're not just members, we're members of one another. Now, just for a moment, just in case, I don't want you to be confused by the word members and thinking of membership. That's not the way Paul's using that term. He's using the term members in the sense of what we would think of as parts of the body. Parts of the body. It even says in Romans chapter 6 that we are not to yield our members under unrighteousness, but to righteousness. The point is don't allow your hands, your feet, your eyes, your tongue to be yielded over to sin. And when it comes to the members of the body, all of us are uniquely different. Uh, we're all different in the body, just like all the cells are uniquely different in the physical body that we have right now. But we all have a common head. We all have a common head, which is Jesus Christ. And we all are to align with what the head says and do what the head wants. And if we don't do that, then we're going to be in a mess. And that's not good at all. But it's the Lord's desire, as we all know, it is God's desire that we, he have such diversity in the body of Christ. Aren't you thankful that you don't have a whole lot of me here? I mean, can we imagine if we we're all alike, how that would be? I don't get along with myself a whole lot always, so I'm not going to be happy if all of you are like me. But I'm very, <laughs> you're not supposed to amen to that, brother. But I, I am very, very thankful that we have such variety in the body of Christ because I couldn't imagine having to be part of this complexity and have the responsibility that the body of Christ has without having the diversity in the body of Christ. I've always encouraged people to make sure that they do what they have desired in their heart for the body of Christ because God has put in your heart something and a talent and a gift and we shouldn't be so concerned about, well, let me make sure I get that exactly right. Look, if you're filled with the Spirit, do what you want to do. And the point is, is that if you have a desire to serve the church in a certain way, I remember years ago I had a, a woman in our church come up to me and say, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I said, neither do I. And I said, but I can tell you how you can found, find out. I said, let me ask you a couple of questions. What do you like to do? What is it that really attracts you as far as service in the body of Christ? She goes, well, I don't really have a whole lot. I love to be around children, and also I love to plant flowers. I said, do both. Do both. God gave you a talent with flowers. Thank God for that. Go plant some flowers. We need some. They're all dead out front. Come on. Right? And if, he has a, if he's giving you a desire to be around children and to help parents or whatever it may be, and it could be teaching, instruction, encouragement, giving, service, all of those that we'll go into later on that help us to see how the body of Christ functions. So Paul gives us this wonderful anatomy of the body to represent the complexity of the body of Christ. But then we move on to the analogy now given to us in verse 12, verses 4 and following. Let me read what it says now, and we think about this analogy now given off this anatomy of the body. Verse 4 says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so, so, here's, here's his application now, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Just as your body, your physical body, has uniqueness, diversity, differences, and every cell is different, and every function of each cell is different, and we have the same common head, so do you as a church. You have a unique body with all different types of members and diversity 
and yet you are also members of one another, and everyone is essential. Essential. Verse 6 is, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And now he's talking about that diversity of the body, of the giftedness of the body. Everybody's different and everybody's gifted differently, and they have a purpose for that. But to move a little further into this, because that's about all that Paul says about this body, uniqueness of the body, I want to take us now to a text over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to leave Romans now for a little while, and we will come back next time, next Sunday. But probably the most extensive passage in the Bible that talks about the body of Christ and its unique diversity is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, if you know anything about the book of 1 Corinthians, it is a corrective letter. Paul is writing because the Corinthians were a total mess. They were fighting each other, dividing over things, following after apostles, and claiming them to be the best other than the other apostles. They were suing one another. There was immorality in the church. There was the overemphasis of the sign gifts to the extent that they were diminishing the, all the other gifts in the church. Paul had to correct all of that mess. And right at the very beginning when he begins to talk about their abuse of the spiritual gifts and their inappropriate use of exalting other gifts over certain gifts in the body, he talks about this uniqueness of the body of Christ. So the first thing we notice in verse 4, if you look at it with me, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, we notice about six things now in this text about the body of Christ. The first is this, the body of Christ is diverse and different. Same thing he said in Romans chapter 12, but let me read what it says here in 1 Corinthians 12, 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities. So there's all types of ministries that develop because of the different natures and giftedness of the individual members and parts of the body. So that's the first point that he makes there that's so important. There is diversity and differences in the body. The second point he brings out in verse 6 is that God works in all parts of the body of Christ. And you think that's pretty obvious. Well, in the Corinthian church, they minimized certain gifts. As if they weren't as important. And what you need to know and I need to realize is that every single gift, even though it may not be prominent, even though it may not be something that stands out, even though it may be functioning in the background like the heart, the lungs, and the liver, and all of this that go on without even thought, there are parts of the body that are not known, not as well known, not as obvious, but God is working in all of them. He's working in all of them. Verse 6 says, and there are diversities of activities. But it is the same God who works all in all. The person who serves faithfully in the Lord's church, the person who gives generously because he loves to give, he's gifted that way. The person who has a gift of administration or the person who is able to teach and teach effectively by the gifts God's given to him. We have to realize it doesn't matter what gift it is. It is God who enables it to occur. It's his work. Without him there, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And number three, God gives the members of the body and their gifts for the profit of the body and not for yourself. Now, this was a major miss in the Corinthian church because they had got to a point that they believed that a lot of the giftedness was for their own personal edification. And they were doing things without regard to the rest of the body of Christ. 
In other words, it had become a self-centered show. And they were more concerned about making sure they profited rather than the profit of all. There would be those that would come to the assembly and they would have the gift of tongues, which is the gift of genuine biblical languages, or not just biblical languages, but languages. And they would come and they would use that gift to bring revelation to the church because the New Testament had not, had not been canonized at that time. And God was giving direct revelation to the church for its instruction and edification. Someone would show up who had the gift of languages, but they would just go ahead and utter whatever they were saying in their language without any representation of the other person you needed so importantly there is the guy to interpret it. Because if, if, if I speak to you in Hebrew and you don't know Hebrew, we're going to stand here and we're going to say, oh, I don't know what he just said. I don't have a clue. Well, that's what was going on in the Corinthian assembly. There were those that were speaking in languages that God had granted them the miraculous ability to use, but they weren't waiting around for the interpreter to show up, or in some cases, they would just get completely out of control and they would take over the service. And Paul had to say, hold on a minute. This is not the way it's supposed to be done. It's all to be done for the edification and the profit of all. It should be considered that way. The gift that you have is not for you, it's for us. The gift I have is not for me, it's for you. And so, we want to use that gift for the profit of all. And God is the one who grants it, right? It says in verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, for the benefit of all. And then number 4, another point Paul brings up is God gives each members or each member gifts as he wills. As he wills, not as we will. I know there's some today who teach you should seek certain gifts, but that's not what the Bible says. This is a sovereign dispensary. This is God sovereignly giving as he wills in his body. You and I are not the designer of the body. He is the designer of the body. He is the one who purchased the body, and he knows exactly who he wants in it. And he's given every single person giftedness based upon that. It says this in verses 11. But uh, one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually What's the last few words? As he wills. As he wills. So much effort is wasted in some believers' lives as they begin to seek certain gifts. The Bible is very clear that God has given and granted gifts to the body as he has designed it so. He knows what's best. I don't. I know just by looking at the human body itself, the complexity, the diversity, the amazing nature of how it all works together, I can only assume that there had to be a great, great intelligence behind this one who has an amazing unlimited ability to design things and come up with things i would never even have comprehended or thought of and so is the case with the body of christ he uniquely knows every single member not only here but every other church throughout the world throughout the world he does so god gives each member's gifts as he wills and then number five god places members from all men in the body, sovereignly. Sovereignly. Look at verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, listen to this, we are all baptized into one body. Now this is not a wet baptism. 
This is you being placed into the body of Christ. We talked about that some here on Wednesday night. Being baptized by the Spirit. Baptized by the Spirit is not you getting some extra unction of the Spirit later on so you get to speak in tongues. That's not what that is. Baptism of the Spirit is God coming and placing you in the body of Christ through salvation, through regeneration, and he deposits his Spirit in you. You're placed, that's the word baptized, placed into the body of Christ, whether a Jew or a Greek, whether slaves or free, he says, it doesn't matter. Now, in our day, it's not that big of a deal. We don't have any big problem with all the diversity of different peoples. At least our church doesn't. Some churches do. Sadly, it shouldn't be that way. But in the early New Testament church, there was a great divide between Gentiles and Jews and even slaves and free. You know, it was kind of like you sit over there and eat over there. and We'll sit over here and eat over here. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus Christ died for every single one of them. It took the same amount of suffering and death and bloodshed to die for the Jew as it did for the Gentile. Jesus took just as much wrath for the Gentile as he did the Jew and the slave and the free and the male and the female. It doesn't matter what it is. Christ gave his all to save us all so that we could be part, unite, united together, uniquely brought together in the body of Christ. Therefore, Paul is driving home. There is no, no difference in the sense of who we are and where we came from. We're not to divide down um, lines of ethnicity or color or anything like that. That is foreign to the scripture. Totally foreign to the scripture. There's a text I often go to over in the book of Revelation chapter 7 that talks about the glimpse of the saints of God in heaven. And it says there's an untold number of people that cannot be numbered. I know people come up and say, how many is that? I say, I don't know. It says it can't be numbered, right? But it, it lists all tongues, tribes, nations standing before the Lord. When we get to heaven, there isn't going to be, you know what? I was an American evangelical, and I supported Trump. <laughs> that ain't going to matter a hill of beans at all. It ain't going to matter. It isn't. <laughs> It isn't going to matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a black or a white or a Chinese or a Japanese or a Canadian or whatever you are. It doesn't matter at all. When you pull our skin off, you know what we are? Bloody. Every one of us, red. It's all the same. And we've been baptized into the body of Jesus Christ and made one body. And that is the unique pleasure it is to be part of a group of Christians who understand that. I share this with you. I mean, it's off my notes here, but it stood out in my life. I know it stood out in Angela's life because our first pastorate that I was in, I had a lot of uh, racism in that church. I did. And I was really affected by that. I was naive in my early Christian lives to just how evil some Christians can be. And whenever I, Angela had a dear friend of hers in Florida who was a, a black woman, and we brought her up. We were like, hey, come to church with us. We had no thought what in the world was about to happen. Some of the older ladies in that church were some, usually, listen to this, usually some of the sweetest people. Oh, my goodness, you could sit around with them and eat apple pie and just love to be with them. 
But I saw a part of evil that I had never seen before come into that church. And I saw stuff there that was not Christian. Oh, no. By no means. And I'm going to tell you the truth, folks. That is as foreign from the scripture as you possibly can get. If you want to be close to hell, that's what that is. That's what that is. And that was a sad, sad account, to say the least. Well, anyway, so we have this beautiful individuality, but we also are baptized into one body. We're all different. We all come from different backgrounds. We're different in many other ways, but the point is we're all part of one body, and we are brought together to drink. As it says in verse 13, the end of the verse, we've been made to drink into one spirit, the spirit of God. And in fact, the body is not one member, but it's many. I know this is straightforward and ABC for most of us, but it's a good reminder, right, of all the importance of the body of Christ. And sixth, the last thing that Paul brings up here, and this is really good. Uh, again, as far as clarity goes, Paul couldn't be any clearer about the body and its usefulness and how it works. This is uh, verse 5 and following here of 1 Corinthians 12. Every member, his sixth point is, every member is important, valuable, and needed. Every, important, every member is important, valuable, and needed. Verse 5 says, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, which would be really strange, where would the hearing be? And if the whole were hearing, where would the smelling be? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? You wouldn't have a body. That's his point. There has to be diversity. There has to be difference of function. There has to be difference of giftedness. But the point he's making is, every part of the body is absolutely essential. Look at it in verse 20. Verse 20. But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head to the feet say, I have no need of you. No. Much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think are less honorable, on those we bestow great honor, and on the unpresentable body parts, greater modesty. But our presentable parts, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism or division in the body. In other words, God elevates every gift, every member, every part, even the ones that are seen, even the ones that aren't, even the ones that get more honor and would be presentable as more valuable, but there's other parts that doesn't they don't seem to have that, but they are just as important. And then he adds this in verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, just a quick question. If you have a toothache, is that isolated? Everything good? Feel good? Every, every other part of you doing great? Oh, no, it doesn't work well. 
get a hangnail, pull that fingernail back, just, just pull it back, no problem, right? You think you're just going to be, that, that thing's over there, it's not even affecting me at all, it's just a little pain over there. Oh no, it affects you. Oh yeah, it can get really rough, for sure. The point is, the smallest hurt in the body affects the whole body. And then in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Let's remember that. We, not this building, beautiful building, yes, but we're not, that's not the church. You are the church. People may ask, where's your church at? It's all over Columbia, Lexington, Wagner, Irmo, Northeast Columbia. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. That's where the church is. But I understand what they mean by the building. But we're, we're the church. We're the church. So Paul says in this text, along with Romans 12, the body of Christ is diverse and different. Two, God works in all parts of the body of Christ. It's his work that accomplishes anything in the body. Then number three, God gives the members of the body their gifts for the profit of the body, not for yourself. Four, God gives each member gifts as, as he wills. Number five, God places from all men in the body sovereignly. And number six, every member is important, valuable, and needed. Every poor, every person, every gift is important. There was a film that was created a few years ago entitled 127 Hours. It was the story of Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston was an adventurer in India who got trapped in a canyon in Utah. Nobody knew where Aaron was, and he waited 127 hours while his arm was dying, wedged between a rock. So his only solution was to do the unthinkable. He took the dull knife that he had on him and cut his arm off, sawed through the bone. That wasn't the end of it. After he had cut his arm off, he had to make an escape out of the canyon. With the arm cut off, he had to rappel down 65 feet to the bottom. Then he had to hike seven miles to safety. Now, I can grant you, if you were to talk to him today, he would be very thankful that he got out of that canyon. But he also would tell you how important his arm was and how he misses it. And you see, every, every part of the body of Christ, whether you're an arm, a leg, a foot, a toe, a nose, a mouth, whatever it is. If you're missing, it hurts. It hurts. And as much as the, the body has the ability to do, do amazing things and compensate for the loss of a member, an arm or a leg or whatever, it still leaves you crippled. And I have to say this. I think that the body of Christ could be so much more if all the members understood the valuable nature of their presence, their giftedness, and their usefulness in the body of Christ. And if we all function as God has called us to do, according to the gifts God's given to us, then the body of Christ will not limp, it will not be armless, it will do all that God has called it to do for his glory, and I would give praise to God for that. So ask yourself as we close this section out, because we're moving into the gifts next time, are you doing what God's called you to do as a part of the body of Christ? As I told you last time, the body doesn't need all the ones that just sit and leave. We need to interact. 
And it doesn't have to be here. It can be throughout wherever, but we need to be part of one another's lives. We are members of one another, part of the body. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for today. Thank you for your word, the clarity of this, Lord, the simplicity of it. And Lord, I just pray that all of us would see the importance of the placement where God has put us in the body. Lord, we are blessed just to have been given by your grace and your mercy, salvation. And then to go further than that, you have placed us in your body, the church, and you have gifted us to serve you in a way that would glorify you. You have equipped us, Lord God, and I pray that we would not be idle, that we would be faithful to carry out what you have called us to do. Lord, help us to be faithful in the smallest of things so that you get the glory in all of the things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.